Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to Paul's letter to the Colossians. I'm going to uh, start a study with you this evening on Christ's preeminence. It's uh, going to include uh, some special focuses. I've received a number of questions lately. Some of the elders, as I'll mention, had made some suggestions and I'd like to try to answer those questions using Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, I'm going to take a larger section. I'm going to read the first chapter and even slightly into chapter 2 because it's going to set the uh, overall theme and introduction to our, to our study. So I'll have to take a bit longer introduction with you this morning. If you'll give attention now to this reading from the Word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. <clears throat> Excuse me. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in his body, in the body of his flesh, rather, through death, to present you holy and blameless 
above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them. God willed to make known what are the riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor according to, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more. Gracious Father, as you have been pleased to inspire such words for us in our understanding through the Holy Spirit, so we continue to pray that that same Spirit would open our understanding that we also may all the more attain to the fullness of the understanding and wisdom and the mystery here revealed. We pray that the apostles' prayer might be fulfilled in us, that we might more and more be partakers of this inheritance that is ours as saints in the light. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, why do we do the things that we do here at the church? It's a question that I have been asked very frequently recently, as it particularly relates to the worship, but as to other things here at Redeemer. The question came up this week at a discussion at our Bible study. It was also it happened to be in our recent elders meeting when we were discussing what we might need to be preaching and teaching. We certainly have been blessed by a number of new people who have come from quite a variety of backgrounds, and they also are curious about these things. And so with all these different directions coming at me, I'm like, okay, Lord, I, I got it, I got it. Um, maybe you've been here for some years, but you're curious too. Uh, why do we do that? Uh, so, somebody asks you, hey, you go to that Redeemer Church. What, what are they all about? What do they stand for? What's, what's so distinctive or different about them? Is it a question that you can answer? There's a way that I really don't like to answer that question that I'll describe to you now. <laughs> um, often, uh, people want to hear, what, uh, what is it that differentiates you from other churches? Uh, so you say, well, you know, our, our church goes back, way back actually, to the Protestant uh, Reformation. Oh, oh, you're a mainline Protestant church. Well, actually, no, we are. Well, we, we actually, we are. Yes, we are mainline Protestants, but we're not like the liberal mainline Protestants you see. Uh, we are 
uh, an evangelical church, we believe. The Bible, that is, we preach the gospel. But actually, we're not broadly evangelical. We're, we're reformed evangelical Protestants. We believe in the sovereignty of God and grace and all that. Oh, oh, oh I see, I see. Okay, you're, you're, you're a reformed Baptist then, or maybe, maybe reformed Episcopal. Actually, no, we're, uh, we're Presbyterian reformed evangelical Protestants. Oh, oh, are you EPC by any chance? No, no, no actually, we, we don't ordain women. We didn't join the... World Council of Churches. We're, we're conservative, Presbyterian, Reformed, Evangelical Protestants. Oh, you're the you're the PCA. Oh, oh well, uh, actually, no. We've always maintained uh, some distinctive convictions on worship and government and some other issues. We're, we're actually the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Synod, a small conservative Presbyterian Reformed Evangelical Protestant Church. Oh, 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 oh! I see, I see. Now it's now it's clear. But, but could you tell me, please, what are the distinguishing convictions of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Synodical Conservative Presbyterian Reformed Evangelical Protestant Christian Church? Well, do you, do you feel the painful absurdity of that kind of approach to the question? And, uh, and giving an answer to it is, um, is, is just absolutely foolish. Uh, one, one writer says, it's possible for a man to win quite a reputation as the manager of a delicatessen for reformed gourmets, producing theological rarities which are unobtainable elsewhere. I hope you're not here because you're a reformed gourmet, and you can't just get this stuff at those regular conservative, Presbyterian, Reformed, Evangelical, Protestant, delicatessens. No, 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 here we split the thinnest of theological hairs with the finest biblical precision, and we are the correct twig on the right fork of the right branch of the right trunk of the right tree. And we have, therefore, distinctive doctrines that we stand for. What are those doctrines anyway? Well, um, I, I, I thoroughly reject the whole approach to the question, brothers and sisters. Um, as far as I can tell, so I've thought it through. We have one and only one distinctive here, and it could be described in various ways, but it is announced very boldly in the end of the text where I left off reading. Our distinctive is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's what we stand for. That's what distinguishes us full stop. Or he says it a little differently in chapter 1, same idea, that he, Christ, is the head of the body, which is the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Uh, this is our distinctive commitment, and if we have any other well, as the psalmist says, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. I, I want to be in another job. If I have any other, I, uh, I, if I have any ambition to have any other distinctive than this, I, I, uh, I repent. I would like you to understand, though, what this means, what the apostle specifically means in context, and I hope you'll come around to his position as well. <clears throat> Let's consider what Paul means by these words as he explains it. I'd like to take the Inter, the uh, introduction to this study in two simple parts, the problem and the solution, the problem and the solution, and we'll make some particular application as the apostle does here. So first, the, the problem. There is a big danger that the apostle is um, strenuously warning the church about 
especially in chapters 1 and 2, though it comes throughout the whole letter. But you, you see, especially, for example, where we left off in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, all this that he's saying, now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. There's, there's, there's some deceit. There's some evil persuasion that's out there that the church needs to be warned against. He, for example, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. It's a very important uh, dichotomy here. Traditions of men, basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. Beware of these persuasive deceptions that are totally empty or vain, that are according to these human principles, not according to Jesus. This includes, you notice, as he goes on in chapter 2, to include doctrines held by the circumcision party in the church that Paul so often had to contend with, which we often call the Judaizers, that is to say Christian Jews who have not only kept some of the ceremonies of Judaism, apparently also including circumcision, verse 11, requirements of the law, verse 14, food laws, a calendar, verse 16, food and drink, a festival, new moon, Sabbaths, these things that are a shadow of to come, um, not, to, not to mention, of course, the, uh, the heart of the gospel, as we'll see else, elsewhere, but uh, the danger is not just in these various traditions of men, you see, but uh, even these, even God's own traditions held over from his covenant with Moses and the worship given to Moses, now being applied to the Gentiles in Christ. He, he names a number of these things specifically, but he's not, he's not done. He goes on, verse 18, to speak of false humility and of the worship of angels. People these having visions which are all in their vain, carnal minds, he says. These doctrines and practices that, verse 18, will cheat us of our reward. In other words, there's this pseudo-spirituality that's kind of hanging around on the fringes of the Christian faith. There's this, there's this connection, but uh, people have this other thing that they want to tell you about, this other revelation uh, or angels or visions uh, that are going to enhance your Christian faith that they need to avoid. Um, not, not to hit every single point, but down to verse 20 in chapter 2. Therefore, if you died with Christ, the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, finishing up with a blanket condemnation, all non-Christian faith and especially non-Christian practice, emphasizing the things that were most popular at the time and therefore most tempting. Paul says Any, anything that you have not received in Christ uh, may have the appearance of wisdom. It may have this deceptive quality that's attractive, but is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's self-imposed religion. Paul warns the church against everything that is already floating around the church in the first century and that has sadly continued to afflict church, the church ever since. But even in the first century, all, all the popular philosophies, the 
Judaizing party, the early Gnostics, he makes reference to, mystery religions, Christian mysticism, spirit and angel worship, asceticism, legalism, ritualism, a whole bunch of isms that plagued the church for centuries. Obviously, these have some strong appeal for spirituality, but, 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 okay, the problem is they say uh, these things will give you some of the buzzwords in the letter fullness. I have the fullness of the Christian faith. This will help you be more mature or complete or perfect, same word, more spiritual, more wise, more knowledgeable, more holy, will give you victory over the indulgence of the flesh. And that's why it's so tempting to spiritual people. Paul says, you beware, beloved. These things are worthless and vain and are to be rejected out of hand. This is not what you received in Christ. Whatever is outside of Christ can only rob you, cheat you, and take away your reward, his words. And despite the appearance of wisdom, they're of no value. They don't help you. They will not deliver you from the indulgence of the flesh. They won't give you maturity, fullness, mystery. Any of these things will not deliver. What makes these things so dangerous, though, is that they promise us what we would like to have, and they agree perfectly with the spirit of the age. They're plausible, persuasive, even popular. They come into the church as helpful practices, philosophies, ceremonies, traditions, that have this appearance of wisdom and are persuasive. And Paul knows that they're going to have a devastating effect on the true spirituality of the church if they get a foothold. Even he threatens to the loss of salvation if they lead people from Christ. This is the problem. A problem, by the way, which our church of really probably all churches has given Um, some of the most attention because of various sins and failings and pressures and temptations of our past in a big context contest with the governing authorities. Here is point one, the problem. It's a big problem. I've stated it very generally, as Paul has. I have not descended into any particulars. I've not tried to make any specific application today. I'm simply emphasizing to you to see how Paul deals with this blanket condemnation, this wide field of sin and temptation. What is going to keep God's people away from all these things, all these attractive and persuasive errors and others which he didn't even have time to mention? What could his possible solution be to all the problems? Answer? Paul presents the triumphant answer in Colossians of what they have received in Christ. And he gives here the most dramatic and majestic portrait of the Son of God, perhaps the most beautiful, in the whole of Scripture. For instance, just picking up in the middle of 115, chapter 115, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do you think you could add something else to Jesus? Is there anything else that there might be in addition to what you have in him? For by him all things were created on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He's the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might have the preeminence in all things, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I won't read the whole thing again. His, his point is, look, people that want to worship angels, people that want to introduce some new ideas, look, is there anything in heaven and earth 
that you could possibly name, that you could possibly lack, that you have not received if you have Jesus. He created it all. He sustains it all. All, all powers are under him, made through him and for him. He is God's fullness in himself. Paul wants you, in these words, I won't read them all again, to be astounded at what you have in Jesus Christ, what you have received at the greatness and fullness of your Savior. What could anybody possibly tempt you with? What, what other good news could you possibly lack? Is there anything that would be better than what you have heard? Why would you look anywhere for the buzzwords in this letter? Fullness, completeness, maturity, mystery, wisdom, philosophy. It, is there anything else that Christ doesn't have and hasn't given you? We are complete in him, he says. And Paul's labor, he says, is to, make, is to present every man perfect or complete in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, other things may have an appearance of wisdom, yes, of course. They may have some worldly wisdom, I suppose. But what we have received in Christ is all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Nothing you haven't already got. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in him you are complete. Okay? You are complete in him who is head of all principality and power, 2.9. He preaches Jesus Christ in all his sufficiency, all his glory, overwhelming every potential deception or distraction with the vaster riches and surpassing greatness of Jesus. He wants to so fill your minds and your horizon with the Son of God, with his great person and glory, that, that anything else that might tempt you be like, that's nothing compared to what I have. He puts everything else and everything that could possibly be named into perspective, doesn't he? Um, that, that's why he gives you this sense of awe and, and wonder in this passage and and, and there's a sense of, of mystery, of infinite greatness, and of perfect reverence. There's this admiration that Paul wants you to fall down at the feet of Jesus, like John did as one dead, as he shined for, shines forth in his glory, and say, wow, what a Savior. You know, when we fall in love, we don't need to be urged to forsake all others. That's the one thing we don't need to be urged to. To do. My wife hates it when I tell... No, she doesn't hate it, but uh, I, I, I have this uh, little uh, thing about when we, when we met, uh, asked at lunch about how my wife and I met. Uh, I didn't tell you uh, at lunch that um, even though I met, I, I met her, I knew I met the woman I wanted to marry. There, there, was this, there was this girl that I had a date with that week already scheduled. I picked her up uh, on a Wednesday, and as we were driving to the restaurant, I said... Um, I have to let you know, I've met somebody, um, and I, frankly, I, I, I think that um, this is, might be the one. I, I just wanted you to know why I wouldn't be calling you again. And she said, could you just take me home? <laughs> I thought, what an idiot I am. But you know what? I wasn't even thinking about it. I, I wasn't even thinking of her. I was just thinking of Catriona. I, 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 I treated this poor girl so she forgave me, but, you know, it was, so, it was just because the one thing that I didn't have to do 
was to be urged to forsake all others. I did that as quickly and clumsily as could possibly have been done. Um, and, and, and this is what Paul is doing. He, 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 he says, look, if anybody ever promises you anything better, better than what you've already found, honestly, it should hold absolutely no attraction to you. You could say, well, there is nothing better. Or to change the metaphor, you don't get so stuffed with spiritual junk food that you lose your appetite and taste for the glorious, all-sufficient Christ. What traditions could possibly be better than the ones he gave? What philosophies other than that which is thoroughly uh, in and through Christ? What wisdom is there that is not hidden in him? To, God, to him, God willed to make known all the riches of this glory and mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory, attaining to the, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge mystery of God. Okay, so he's saying everything you could ever, ever want is in Christ. All these buzzwords, mystery, fullness, deliverance, triumph, knowledge, maturity, perfection. You, what can the false teachers promise you when you have it all? You have more than you could possibly absorb in this life. You cannot exhaust the riches that are available and given to you in Jesus. You have been made full. You have become complete in him. You have received all that you need. No human tradition, wisdom, mystery, ecstatic experience, angelic revelation, or vision, or calendar, or food, or ritual, or worship practice has any power to take you higher, only lower. Nothing can take you closer, only farther. If it's not in Christ, you don't need it. You might not realize it. It might, might be deceived for a time, but it's true. And I'll not go on. I think you get the idea simply to say, uh, Peter put it this way, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that is what Paul does in this letter. He, he, look, he says, look, no matter what situation comes now to Colossae, what, what temptation avails you, Paul doesn't have to respond heresy after heresy after heresy. He's destroying all heresy, every potential heresy, every error, every tradition, every practice by preaching the fullness of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Okay, you see that. I've labored the point long enough. But I'd like to come back to the question that we began with and make this connection that Paul does. Well, says the man, what, what distinguishes your church and its distinctive, dis, distinctive commitments and worship and practice? Well, as I say, Christ, full stop. Paul wants to be perfectly clear. It's very, very practical. Um, what does it mean, though, in, in context for this commitment to Christ alone? The rest of the book opens it up and applies this commitment. As I've already said in chapter 2, he rejects all religion, doctrines, and commandments of men. A commitment to Christ and his fullness necessarily means that any Human tradition, wisdom, philosophy, ecstatic experience, angelic revelation, vision, ritual, calendar, food, worship, or practice is out. This does not exhaust the implications of this distinctive principle of worship, um, but it does cover the heart and the center that we have received in him all that is ours. It also, by the way, goes on in the chapter 3, starting in verse 1, to emphasize practical holiness. There is, we are to be distinguished as Christ's people with minds set on Christ rather than the sinful things of the earth. For we died and our life is hid with Christ in God. Um, and he goes on to describe, oh, I don't know, maybe some people would denounce it as a puritanical morality. 
as though that's what distinguishes us from Brand X Reformed Church. Uh, well, you have more of a Puritan piety, I see. Well, if it does distinguish us, it's only secondarily. If we are strongly committed to a, a, a whole biblical morality, it is because we have our minds, as we were raised with Christ, we seek those things are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Our life being hidden with Christ in God, uh, this, this is our commitment. You see, Paul connects this particular holiness to our commitment to Christ. He goes on, chapter 3, verse 10 and following, it means we're distinguished by social, racial, and economic unity rather than prejudice because we are all in the image of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. But Christ is all and is in all. Um, all right, this has lots, lots to do with uh, current debates in our world today. Uh, other people have ideas about racial reconciliation that are flooding the schools and so forth. Uh, only to point out here, Christ has achieved racial reconciliation. Our call is to walk in it and to enjoy it and to demonstrate it to the world. I ask from time to time, what group are you contextualizing for in your church? Uh, whom are you trying to reach? Are you perhaps a student church? One man at a certain church in town asked me, um, whom are you trying to reach? I said, um, white, red-haired people, of course. Uh, I, I, you know, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely foolish. We are to be distinguished by this uh, integration in our congregation because Christ is all and is in all, you see. Uh, Paul very directly makes that application to this very diverse church in Colossae. Further, Paul adds, this commitment means that we are committed to a certain special love and kindness. Um, this is to be demonstrated in our church. People in other denominations can't believe it when I tell how little contention and strife we have in the congregation, certainly in among our elders. Um, in, even in our synod, we, we, have our, we have our bumps, we have our, our fights, but it's not like Brand X Reformed Church. Whenever I get back from one of these meetings, people always ask, you know what they ask. I get back from synod, they say, what was the controversy? What was the fight about? Well, I, I have to disappoint them year after year and say, you know, actually, we, we had no big fight. We, we had very little controversy, and that which we had was easily handled, and we're, we're uh, basically put, put off uh, various things to be discussed for the year, and they'll come back next year, and people can hard, hardly believe it. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says in one of these pamphlets, one of these propaganda pamphlets we have for our denomination, why become an ARP? He says, because I appreciate a church that historically wanted to be faithful without being schismatic. Um, that is to say, uh, always uh, breaking, breaking up and breaking fellowship and, and doing all these other things. I, wait, Sinclair Ferguson, some of you will know, is one of our more eminent uh, writers in our denomination, now retired. Um, I, I asked him after his first synod at, uh, uh, in, the, in the summer, I said, um, what would that have been like in the Church of Scotland, you know, your General Assembly. He said, do, do, do you remember that, that little bit of 
tension we had, you know, Scottish accent, right? This little bit of tension we had uh, yesterday morning. I, I said, yeah. He says, the whole thing's like that. <laughs> said, uh, it's good to be here, isn't it? He says, I really don't have the time to be here, but it's good to be here. Yeah, great, okay. Um, we, we feel it uh, not just to be something that's nice, but, but something that is incumbent upon us. That we have an obligation in this congregation, as not just the denomination, we have a, a definite a commitment to these, this practical love and kindness that he mentions, the peace of God ruling in our hearts in one body to be thankful, and, and so forth, for, he says, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus. We are distinguished by applying Christ in our relationships. Um, Paul says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. You see how he just continually ties it in. Some people have said, oh, you're ARPs, you're, you're committed to that biblical counseling stuff, right? Isn't Jay Adams in your denomination? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, okay. Um, so biblical counseling, good. Uh, in, insofar as we seek to apply the word of God to the souls of people in all of their need, that secondary commitment is only because we are following the apostles' lead as best we can to apply Christ to the situations that occur in people's hearts and lives. The commitment to Christ leads to a very distinctive kind of biblical counseling, I suppose. It does lead to a very distinctive biblical worship, often called traditional by people who are used to uh, other traditions, I suppose. Um, this is one of the first things people usually comment on. Wow, where did you get all these weird songs? Okay, yep, your guilty parties are laughing. Uh-huh. Um, so these songs that are totally foreign, let's see how they're described here in verse uh, 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing in grace your hearts to the Lord. I'll seek to cover that uh, more detail in another, another um, sermon, but we are distinguished by a very strong emphasis on the word of Christ, are we not? Um, and if we are, it is not because, oh, you're one of those psalm-singing church. You're psalm-heavy. Are you psalm-only and all these other things, and you know, um, when I when I uh, when my dad had his accident, he couldn't read his Bible anymore. He uh, gave it to me. I thought it was wonderful. I was a new Christian. I, I looked in the back, and, and there were the Psalms of David and Meter, right? Um, the standard Scottish hymnal, um, the old Scottish Psalter, put it put in the back, and I never I never heard of that. I never heard of anybody actually singing Psalms. I loved it. I photocopied the whole thing. I kept it in my car. I, I memorized it as I was at stoplights and driving down the road. It, uh, as much as I could try to pay attention. Uh, greatly blessed is the man who walketh not astray in counsel of ungodly men who stands in sinner's way. I thought, this is just amazing. This is excellent. I love it. Some years later, I heard that somebody had actually made some CDs of people singing psalms. I, I ordered all the CDs they had. I listened to nothing else for about two or three years. I, I learned them all by heart and more by heart. They just so completely ravished my soul. They changed my view of God and his Christ and his reign and the hope that we have and his holiness and goodness and the high experience and the great sovereign doctrine and all these things just completely renovated me. 
And uh, yeah, uh, late, later I found out that, uh, oh, you could actually still, still buy these things and still sing them. That was years later. That is to say, I, I fell in love with the word of Christ. And I realize everyone doesn't have that experience. But if, if we are distinctive in that, it's only because we desire the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. My God, my God, to you I cry, oh, why have you forsaken me? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms. At least that is clear for now. What interfaith ministries do you participate in, people ask. Um, are you in the Blacksburg Council and the whatever interfaith thing? Well, for, for verse 17, that whatever we do in word or deed, we, we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are glad that other people are doing good works in other ways. I'm not unhappy about the good works, but we are very expressly committed to word and deed in the name of Jesus. And that's the, that's the, that's the big divide, where if it's Jesus' name is on it and it's a biblical minute, we're supporting it. Um, if not, then we're, we're not. So we, we have some distinctive commitments in ministry. But these distinctive commitments, you see, are only because we desire to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. One of the things that people very often comment on is the, the families, and especially the, the kids here. Some years ago, somebody came in and they said, uh, you have a lot of kids here. I said, yeah. He said, and they're, they're really well behaved. I said, uh, yeah. He said, is this a cult? <laughs> Um, okay, um, I, we, 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 we do seem to be distinguished by family life, uh, sometimes called non-egalitarianism, I suppose, by people who don't like the idea of chapter 318, wives submitting to their own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Once again, co- the connection. Are children noticeably obedient to their parents because this is well-pleasing to the Lord, 320. <sighs> um, this family-integrated thing, um, that we seek to worship together because children are expected to be in the congregation as he addresses them. I, I hope that this is only because we have a commitment to Christ and everything, everything else is going to have to work out. We have a different attitude about our work in the world. Uh, so you say, oh, you guys, Kyperian world in life, you, how does that, how does that fit? Is it, um, okay, well, no matter what it's called, however people might marginalize it and seek to push us off to the side as being strange, the, the point is that all of our work, whatever we do, we do heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Masters at work imitating their own masters in heaven, 323-41. That we recognize the dignity of labor, uh, as Luther did so well explaining in his work. That even slaves here, even, even slaves are not obeying their masters in the flesh with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, working as to the Lord, that is unto Jesus, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. See, I don't work for that guy anymore. I work for Jesus. Changes everything. A, A distinctively Christian commitment to how we work and what we do that uh, does seem to make its way out. We have a distinguishing commitment to prayer, to corporate prayer in our Sunday school time today, for instance, and a constant reminder of the kingdom concerns as we were reminded in chapter 4, verse 2, um, uh, pray for us that God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. We have these kingdom concerns always before us, and 
it must and ought to be spoken. Well, I, I realize I'm, I'm really going late. I gave you a short sermon this morning, so give me a little break tonight, okay? Um, I, I actually have a little more to say in this vein, but I think you've gotten the idea. Um, if, if we have a different presentation of the gospel, if we sing different songs, if we have some different worship and ministries and activities and, and, and families and counseling, and education, dis- discipline, preaching, um, it's not because we think that we're better and we've arrived and we've got it all worked out or that we are really, really traditional or minimalist. I also get that people say that we're minimalist. I suppose we are in a way. We are here for what we have received in Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Sam Waldron writes in his exposition of the 1689, how often small, isolated, and despised bands of Reformed Baptists and other Reformed Christians have reacted by overemphasizing their distinctives and displaying a vulnerability to all sorts of peculiarities and eccentricities. You say, what do you stand for? We're not, we're not given these little f- fringe things. We're committed to Jesus Christ, the fullness of the way that the apostle has meant it, to the glory of God, and all those other principles, doctrines, and commitments mean nothing if they are even one little bit outside of him. And good riddance to them if they're not. Borrow the analogy of the solar system. All of our distinctives are just relatively small but beautiful planets in the solar system, not because of themselves, but because they revolve around the brilliant center of the solar system. I mean, Saturn, with its magnificent, majestic rings and misty surface and stripes, would be a very dull planet indeed if it did not reflect the light that illuminated the planet's glory from the sun. So any study of our church's distinctives, which I often... Uh, avoid in some ways would be meaningless and the Bible as a whole would be dull had not Christ been in all ways the center of all things giving light and balance and alignment in all of our witness the distinctive principles that we are committed to are this Christ is all and is in all and that will keep everything else in the proper orbit let us have Christ first and last. And if we have any particular doctrines or practices, let us do so that in all things, and only because in all things, we wish him to have the preeminence. Well, thank you for bearing with me tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we wish again to see our Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe, filling the temple, for Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. So we likewise would be overwhelmed with the sight of Christ, that none should tempt us, that none should distract us, that none could even offer us any more than we have received. May he-